He has been a rehearsal pianist, a music arranger, an orchestrator, a vocal arranger, conductor, musical director, and composer, but the title he prefers most is songwriter. He first came to the public's attention with Songs for a New World, followed by his Broadway debut with Parade, The Last Five Years, Urban Cowboy, and most recently, Thirteen, and he has a cornucopia of projects in the pipeline, which he manages to fit in alongside a constant schedule of concert and cabaret performances. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I am very pleased to meet Jason Robert Brown. Hello, Howard. Hello, Jason. Let me start with the fact that you, more so than I think any contemporary musical theater composer I'm familiar with, are out there performing your own stuff a lot. And I'm wondering what the genesis of that was or the drive to do that is. Well, I think it comes in three parts. Uh, The first is that Uh, I want to. I happen to like performing, and part of my early impetus was to be Billy Joel, and so the idea that I get to do that in my own sort of limited fashion is very appealing, and so I like to do it. The second thing is that I can do it, um, which I think a lot of musical theater composers are not performers. You know, there are obvious exceptions, uh, like Lin-Manuel, but, you know, there are are, uh, those of us who really feel very comfortable in the spotlight performing our own work are rare. I think that's why some of them went into composing for the theater in the first place, is you can let other people do that for you. Uh, And then the third component was really a a necessity, that my work has all the runs of my shows in New York have been very brief. And so by necessity, in order to get the work out there, I've needed to proselytize. I've needed to advocate for it. And because I can and want to be a performer, that's the venue in which I chose to do that advocating. There are people who say there's nothing like hearing a playwright read their own play. Do you think you bring an interpretation to your own material that performers, other performers might not? Well, by definition, anybody's going to bring something to the material that anybody else wouldn't. But yes, I mean, I think there is a character to the, especially to the songs I choose to do. You know, I don't do everything, but, um, I think I particularly choose songs that have a a specific resonance for me as a performer and that I can bring something to. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I think inevitably, especially because a lot of my work is so personal, it it seems impossible that I wouldn't bring something to it that there's no way I could inform an actor about. When you are working on a show, do you have an urge to coach the actors when they're singing your songs or do you in fact choose to do that? When I'm working on a show, when I'm in rehearsal for, let's say, the original production of a show, you know, I, there's a there's a large hierarchy of people, and I'm never entirely sure where my position is, and it's different on every show, to be honest. But my preference is that the director and the musical director will do their work with the actor, and then I'll sort of come in, and I can adjust, and I can tweak. But I, I feel like, in some ways, the author can be a not helpful presence in the rehearsal process sometimes if he or she gets too in the middle of it. You know, my world is full of details. Everything about a musician's world is very detail-oriented. And some of those details are helpful and some of them aren't. And I'd rather let the process weed out what details are important and what aren't. So if I'm working, you know, again, if I'm doing the first production of a show, then I'm with a cast that's been handpicked and they're probably the best people in the world. You know, I don't have to tell Norbert 
how to you know figure out what a line is about i want him to bring himself to that and then if he says to me i don't get this or this doesn't breathe for me or i don't know how to make my way through it i can say to them because i do perform it and because i did write it in my voice it will work try and go with it this way or try and find it this way or because i am a performer and i'm sympathetic i can say i see why you're having trouble with that let me see what i can do to, to fix that what do you mean by you wrote it in your own voice Oh, I literally wrote it in my own voice. I mean, I, I, I write everything by singing. I play at the piano and I sing and I just shriek at the top of my lungs. And, and that's that's my writing process in general. So by the time a song gets to an actor, I know it can be sung because I've sung it. When you write songs for characters, though, it may be in your physical voice, but it's not necessarily in your character. Is that correct? Right. Well, I mean, you know, there's a discussion to be had about whether anything is ever actually autobiographical in the first place. You know, the minute you commit it to paper, you're already taking a point of view on it. But, you know, obviously, no, I'm going to take the point of the character and write that piece, and then I'm going to sing it in that character's voice. But when I sing it, it will still be me singing it. So if you wanted to be Billy Joel, which came first, wanting to be Billy Joel or wanting to work in musical theater? I'm not sure. You know, you have to remember I grew up in the 70s, which were not a banner time for musical theater. Uh, and so what was out there in terms of musicals for me was all stuff that was from many years earlier. I mean, there was The Wiz was the first show I saw, which was 1978. But outside of that, I didn't see much contemporary musical theater at all. And what we had in the house was West Side Story uh, or Hello, Dolly or stuff like that. So I loved all that stuff, but it would never have occurred to me at 10 years old that that was a viable career path because I would have assumed that all Broadway musicals had actually already been written. Uh, and so, you know, it, I, I wouldn't have thought, and, you know, I just, it, it wouldn't have occurred to me to go write a Broadway show. So I think the Billy Joel thing came first, but it morphed fairly quickly. It took me a while to realize that I had to decide between one or the other. I'm not actually sure that I ever did decide. It just became obvious that one was more likely than the other, and therefore I should probably do it. But by the time I was in college, I fully was a performing guy who wrote musicals. And it, you know, it was around college that I started making the decision to just be a writer primarily. Well, when you talk about college, college for you is the Eastman School of Music, correct? Yeah. So you'd already made a decision to study music and musical performance. No, no, I was there as a composer. I was there okay. as a composition major. But you hadn't decided the route. It was once you got there that you said, okay, I'm heading towards musical theater. And did Eastman actually offer you those opportunities? Because I, I think of it more as a classical. Yeah, school. no, I mean, the thing was, uh, I was... Uh, under a lot of pressure to go to college, which was not something I was all that eager to do. My grades in high school were terrible. Um, and so I, I despaired of the whole process and where am I going to get in? And then it's just more school. And I really shouldn't I just go play piano someplace and, and do what I want to do that way. But having nice Jewish parents, they they insisted that I, I should go to school. So we ended up settling on going to a music school. And the question was whether to go to someplace like Berkeley, which has a primarily, you know, contemporary commercial music program or to go someplace classical. And Ultimately, I felt like, let me try the hardcore classical schools and see what I get out of that because Berkeley seemed more focused on me as a player. And even now, my chops as a player are not, you know, top level Herbie Hancock kind of piano playing chops. I'm, I'm just a sort of a blues pianist. So I, uh, I thought it would be an interesting challenge to try and get into, into a, a conservatory. Um, so I tried and got into Eastman. 
Um, but I, even when I was there, it, it was just, I was marking time. I really, I really wanted to get out of school. I gather through your own offices, there's a YouTube clip of you performing with with a band that you put together while you were at Eastman. Is that correct? I'm, I'm loath to encourage people to go look at it. But um, <laughs> when I was in college, I, you know, Eastman was a, not just a conservatory, but a very conservative conservatory. It was, you know, very classically oriented. I had missed out. Like two years before I got there, Charlie Strauss had actually taught there for a couple of years. He's a I think. graduate of there, I, I, if I think, remember correctly. Yeah. And so yeah. he had taught there, and uh, Doug Besterman had been there working with Charlie. Doug, uh, the orchestrator. And, uh, and I grew up with Doug and his brother Brian. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew all that, but I missed it. Charlie wasn't there when I got there. So Eastman was a very uptight, real, rigid classical conservatory. And being me, I felt like I had to sort of tweak that. So I put together a group called the Eastman Chamber Rock Ensemble. Which really was just, uh, you know, me and a, a big horn section and some backup singers. I mean, you know, all the musicians were free. Why not? So I just asked a bunch of people if they thought it would be fun to do that. And so we put in some of my own songs and, and other stuff like that. And so there is a, a video of one of our concerts, which is humiliating. Was the music that you were playing at that time in your Billy Joel mode? I'm wondering if you could play a little something from that era of your songwriting. Well, what you'll hear on the clip on YouTube is, the, is the, this. <laughs> I don't even remember how it goes anymore, but it's the opening of The River Won't Flow. But it was a different song then. Uh, So you can actually hear stuff that I ended up putting into uh, Songs for a New World. If you heard all the songs that I wrote back then, you'd probably, first of all, you'd know exactly who I was stealing from all the time, but you'd also really clearly hear the sort of work that I was going to end up doing. It's a lot of sort of overly ambitious pop writing. It's, you know, a lot of Hmm. metric modulations and crazy time signature things and things in alternating keys. And, you know, just I was at a music school after all. So there's a lot of stuff like that. But at the same time, there's, you know, a big horn section and, you know, a drummer and backup singer. So it conflated all of these things that I was listening to. You know, I would say my journey over the last 20 years has been learning how to conflate them better. So you ultimately made the decision not to complete studies at Eastman, and you headed into New York City. I didn't. I headed to Miami. Oh, Miami first. I'm sorry. So uh, why Miami? Oh, you know, I was following a girlfriend. There's a summer camp that I spent a lot of my formative uh, years called the French Woods Festival of the Performing Arts, which is, of course, a ridiculous name. It's a summer camp. And uh, I had gone there. And after I dropped out of Eastman, I sort of was at loose ends. And so I called French Woods and asked if they needed me to come as a counselor. So I came and I went and I played piano for the shows. And I met a girl there and she invited me to come back to her house in Miami and live with her and her mother. And you can tell this was not going to end well. But uh, but we we did that. And so... It was just a year. I was just marking time. I mean, I knew I had to get to New York, but I didn't. I'm glad that I took the year. Uh, I'm glad that I took the year. I I worked at a high school in Miami called the New World School of the Arts. And uh, I was a pianist there and I taught some classes. And it was just a good way to sort of, before I had to jump into being a professional in New York City, I got to be a professional somewhere first. And how did you become a professional in New York City? I, I listed all of these positions you've had. I mean, early on, rehearsal pianist, orchestrating, music directing. How did you get those early gigs? Well, I think if I had been successful enough at any one of them, I wouldn't have bothered doing the other ones. But the um, 
you know, I just living in New York is expensive and I had to do whatever I could possibly do to pay the bills. So my first jobs were all playing in piano bars. I used to play at 88s down in the village and uh, Don't Tell Mama and uh, Rose's Turn. And, you know, that was my income. And then I started playing cabaret shows in those rooms, you know, and I, there was a, a, a great woman I worked with then called Annie Hughes and Annie and I did a bunch of shows and Amy Ryder and uh, just sort of swell, lovely people. And then some one-offs, people who'd come in. But eventually what happened is that there was a group called The Tonics, and The Tonics were a, a group out of L.A. It was four singers, and they did sort of this very close harmony but kind of new age. It's You know, it was sort of a CD 101 thing. It was a very L.A. sound that they did, but then they all came to New York to try and break into the cabaret scene, which I'm saying with sort of my eyebrows furrowed because what does that mean? Because but, there's such big money in it too. Uh, I, well, I, you know, <laughs> there's sort of – I guess if you end up being the kind of people who, you know – get to play Feinstein's and go travel around the country and do those rooms there is, but that's not what they were aspiring to. I think they really wanted to be rock stars, and they thought that this was the path. At any rate, so I played for them, and because their sound was so unique, but what they did, they mainly did show tunes, and so they would do these show tunes and these close harmony arrangements, and they got a lot of very interesting fans, and they looked great, and they were sort of a, a really cool kind of weird group. So I, I played for them just because I could play the rock and roll stuff, which a lot of cabaret pianists couldn't then and I actually can't now. And so I would play the rock and roll stuff. And so I was the, I was the guy behind them and they got a lot of attention and that all sort of kept circling back to me. And one of their fans was Daisy Prince and Daisy, uh, would come to their shows and at the end of every performance, they would all gather around her in the audience and she would give them notes. And they were always really, really smart notes and things that I wouldn't have been able to say to the tonics. So I thought, boy, first of all, she's really smart. And second of all, she can get away with saying these things. And so I was putting together a review of my own work that I wanted to do in one of these cabaret rooms. And I had seen Closer Than Ever, uh, Richard and David's show. So I thought I want to do something like that. So it was four singers and, you know, a couple of musicians. And we were going to do it at 88s. And I asked Daisy if she would direct it. And that was the beginning of my association with Daisy Prince. And, and that her, was Songs for a New World. It eventually no. turned into Songs for a New okay. World. Uh, it took a long time to get there. But uh, but we just had fun working on that for years. And through her, I met her dad. And that sort of is what started me off in professional show business was, you know, was was getting up to that, that echelon. When you set out to write this review, I mean, was it songs that you'd already written? Were you writing original material with intent that they would be thematically – linked in an evening you know when we started working on it you know i was 22 years old so whatever trunk i may say i had was not all that deep in the first place and secondly was mainly filled with shit but um the the uh we would then just p start pulling together we didn't know what the show was going to be about at first, so we just picked the best songs and started putting them, you know, on a grid. We would say, this will come second, and this will come fifth, and, you know, just like we knew the pace of it, and then I'd start filling in the holes. The only thing that we had that I really liked were these songs I had written. I had started a truly terrible idea, uh, the, uh, this idea of writing sort of revisionist uh, American history. So I was going to do a thing on Christopher Columbus and a thing on Betsy Ross, and I was going to do a thing on, you know, the Civil War. And then I got stuck because so much of the American history that I could think of in my mind was just about war. And I thought, how much of that do I want to write? So I, I sort of got stuck in all of that. But I had written these Christopher Columbus songs. I had written three of them, and then I had written uh, this Betsy Ross number. So Daisy and I took 
the third of the Christopher Columbus songs, and we decided that should be the opening of the show. That We needed something before it, but that should really be sort of the thing that sets the idea for the show, this idea of exploring new worlds. And that Betsy Ross would come somewhere near the end, therefore, because what she's really singing about is the war. And so we had those two things as a bookend and the idea of a new world. And the, the original title of the show was just The New World. And then we would just fill in different slots. And the idea all through was never to make a specific literal narrative out of it because we had seen a bunch of shows that took people's catalogs and built a narrative around them. And I felt that it trivialized all the material. And Daisy felt the same thing. You know, that, that what you would do is take these very rich characters and then put them in some very minor circumstance and then have to justify these very big emotional songs. So we didn't want to do that. So we just said, let's let these characters be who they are. These are big songs sung by big characters in big places. And let's let there be an emotional narrative. There's some story that we're telling emotionally, but let's not worry too much about what the literal through line here is. We know we have these four people, and these four people are, in a way, they function archetypally you know they do certain things that you know the the mother figure and the ingenue figure and the you know the dissolute uh guy in his 20s and then the young black man and we felt like those were four things that all made a kind of sense if we followed them and if we were just true to the emotional through line we felt like the show would would work its own magic and so we did and we just would put in songs as as I wrote them, and then we would take them out, and we'd put them in and take them out, and we did reading after reading and workshops. You know, we went up to Toronto because this was when uh, Hal was working with Livent, and so Daisy and I were invited to go up there and use their facilities to do this workshop of of, uh, of the show. And so we would throw in songs and take them out, and that workshop was really actually a lot of fun because we had Lori Beachman uh, was part of it. And she, at the first performances of Just One Step were Lori, who nobody knows this, but she was hysterically funny. So we did all that. The only piece now, you know, when I look at the whole show, the only thing that I think is is totally just, and, and it never made any sense then either, uh, is Surabaya Santa. But, you know, it's, we loved it and it gets a laugh and we sort of need that at the top of the second act. And especially given what comes after Surabaya Santa, which tends to be a very uh, quick slide downhill emotionally, we felt like, you know, something that was fun and buoyant. So it's ridiculous. And, it, you know, in any other kind of a show that would have gotten cut, but because we were a little bit loose, we could keep it in. Was there ultimately a lot of material generated that didn't end up in the show? Oh, I mean, yeah. It sounds like the format would have – you said you didn't go in with a very deep trunk and what you had was not so great. But it sounds like in this process, you probably built up your trunk pretty fast. Well, I did. But, you know, I also – the thing is that because these songs always had to be freestanding – I'll say cabaret songs, though that's a little bit – they aren't cabaret songs. You know, cabaret songs you can sing in a cabaret. These songs, if you sing them in a cabaret, most people take their drinks and run. But, um, you know, they were all very large-scale solo pieces, so they were very hard to write. And if they didn't work, there was no use for them later in my life. You know, it, it's not like I've ever used any of the stuff that I cut from Songs for a New World. Hmm. There's, you know, there's a trunk of it, but they're, they're these massive six-minute songs that don't work. <laughs> is there is there anything you remember particularly that was cut that you might share just a little bit with us? Um, no, I feel the prompt for it, but I don't. I, I, nothing that sort of comes to mind. It's uh, it's all a long time ago, you know. And it, part of finding my voice in songs for a new world was the was still trying to work my way through. Am I a pop songwriter who is writing this theatrical piece, or am I a theater writer? And so some of the stuff we cut was very vague pop kind of stuff that never had any character behind it. Uh, and so that's that's also why that stuff never existed after that. 
do you always need to write character? Um, even if the character is just me, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I need a reason to, to get a song going. I, and I don't write very much uh, or very often, um, which I probably should do more of. But um, no, I, I really need a very specific set of points. You know, I, I need a good pile of references before I can get into the actual writing of a song. Because what, what's going to generate that music is going to be an emotional state and that emotional state is going to come from a circumstance and that circumstance, you know, so it can be mine. I can be really feeling it. But if I'm not clear about what it is, then I can't really write. I've always been enormously impressed by your vocal arrangements for A New Brain. Probably, for me, one of the first times I truly think I got a sense of what vocal arranging was about because of the intricacy and the number of times I've played that music. <laughs> what is it like for you as a composer to layer your creativity on a base, which is the work of another composer? And how does that function? Well, you know, the trickiest part of it is knowing when I have to send the composer me out of the room because there is a desire always to fix, and I may not be fixing for the better. You know, it's just we're going to impose our own aesthetic on whatever it is that we're working on, and so I have to be careful not to impose too much. And working with Bill Finn was tricky in that way because he left me a lot of room to do whatever I wanted, and Bill can be sort of maddeningly unspecific, and then at times he can be equally insanely specific, but he doesn't have a whole lot of vocabulary to tell you what it is he wants. So I would get things that felt like drafts or felt like sort of fragments, and my brief was then to pull them together. But the the thing that's important to say is that in general, when I got the fragments or the drafts, those are not the numbers that you noticed. When Billy really put himself to writing this song and he really had it he really knew what he wanted to say and how he wanted to say it those songs were heart music and the law of genetics and i'd rather be sailing and and they're off those things i really i had no part in the writing of i just got to color them in you know with with these vocalists and i you know we got to do before the lincoln center production there was a workshop that i was music director for at the public and we had just an astonishing group of singers and so i wrote these vocal arrangements for the you know just the most amazing singers in the entire world and i it felt like i had you know the biggest playground in the world to play with um and I, it, it didn't occur to me at the time that that was going to be going on and that other people were going to have to replicate those arrangements. But, uh, but it was just, it was a fantastic sandbox to play in. And like I said, when, when Bill's stuff was that clear and that good, uh, there were no conflicts. That was just fun. I just got to have a party. And there, there were still times Bill had to pull me back. I remember there was a whole bunch of stuff I wrote at the end of And They're Off, which, you know, there's, there was Malcolm was singing at the front, but then there's all these people who are spectators behind him. And so I wrote basically the entire horse race uh, with all of them responding to the horses. This is while Malcolm was doing his last chorus. And so I had all of that going on and it was really funny, but I, you know, Bill rightfully said, you know, there, there's an actual song happening here. So uh, I had to, to get rid of that, but that was fine. Um, and then even, I have to also say this of my vocal arrangements in a new brain, a lot of, 
what you hear was massaged very beautifully and very sensitively by Ted Sperling, who was the music director for that production. Um, and he made a lot of stuff sound better, I think, than it, it would have in my, you know, when I wrote those arrangements when I was 25 or 26. So, I, you know, I, he, he cleaned them up a lot. You know, he didn't change their character, but they, they sound as good as they do because Ted is so good at his job. Mm-hmm. At Roughly this same time, and perhaps even during that time, you are given the opportunity to write your first full score that certainly is on track towards production, specifically Parade. Alfred was originally going to be working with Steve Sondheim, he had hoped, and that wasn't coming together because of timing issues. You certainly knew Hal Prince. Was Hal already attached with Alfred at that point? Oh, yeah. I mean, this all came about because of, of Hal and because of Daisy, really. When uh, While we were working on Songs for a New World, I was just looking for work. I mean, you know, writing an off-Broadway review does not, it turns out, pay a lot of money. So I, um, I you know, I was doing anything I could. And I had sort of very, um, what do I want to say? With great chutzpah, I had gone up to Hal and said, is there any work for me? Do you have a job for me on Kiss of the Spider Woman? So he got me a job as the rehearsal pianist on the show, which was great. And I got to sit around and watch those rehearsals. It had already been rehearsed in London, so I was mainly in for the tech in New York and, and the put-ins there. But it was it was thrilling to be a part of it and to get to watch Hal work. And uh, Hal enjoyed having me around, I guess, and he asked me to be the music director for a show called The Petrified Prince, which Michael John Lacusa had written and which they were doing at the public. And so I got to be really in that process uh, and really watch the way Hal worked and the way Michael John worked, which was very instructive, um, and to work with uh, wonderful actors, you know, at a very high level. And I think, uh, I don't know whether this is true, maybe I'm just projecting it, but I think Hal was doing that to groom me for the experience of of writing a show for him. Uh, So he came to me... You know, I, you'd have to really ask Steve what the story was about when he bailed out of, of writing the Leo Frank show. You know, I, Alfred and Hal both say that he had felt like it was just a downer and he didn't want to write a downer because he had just written Passion and he kept getting pilloried for writing depressing shows and he didn't want to do it. So he was out. And I think the deal is that Hal, being sort of famously impatient, saw me wandering around all the time working on Songs for a New World with Daisy and he just said, well, I'll ask that kid. Um and, you know, uh, what I like to say is sort of what Ringo always said, which is I just never got fired. That was the start of the process. So I had been able to see Hal working on these two shows and Alfred, who is just the most wonderful collaborator in the world. So we got to just start working on this big piece. But that was – I started working on it before Songs for a New World had even opened. So that was in 94, I think I was asked to start writing songs. So when New Brain was at – Lincoln Center, that may have even been directly before Parade went into rehearsal. I think there. it was the same year. Yeah. I didn't have the specifics. So when you are brought on to a project, Alfred is there, presumably had already been working on the story and on the script. You have Hal, who's already planning to direct it. How do you find the musical idiom, the way into the piece for yourself? You know, it was tricky in parade because first of all it was huge you know i knew it was going to be writing on a very large canvas but it was also it was period and it was very place specific it's all very southern 
there was an album called Sounds of the South, one of those Smithsonian collections, and it just came out on a CD right when I had started working on the piece. So I bought that, and I listened to that over and over and over again. I'm not sure how much of it I absorbed into my bloodstream, but I'd like to believe that some of it sort of found its way in there. But other than that, the great thing about writing that piece when I was so young is that I had not yet used up all of my natural ideas. You know, there's a lot that now when I write, I have to, I play it and I then have to edit it immediately because it sounds like something I've already written. And the nice thing about Parade is I hadn't written any of it yet, really. So I could just sort of, there's so much of that show that's sort of my unfiltered voice, which Hmm. I I really appreciate about it. Um, There's also something that's kind of naive uh, about it, but I'll, I'll say that not as a pejorative. So Alfred and I would sit and we'd talk about what any given scene was supposed to be. And then Alfred would go off and he'd write the scene and he'd fax it over to me. Remember faxes. And then I would put it on my piano and I would just start playing. And I just, you know, I'd like to imagine that a lifetime of listening to and loving music of all kinds sort of prepped me for what the sounds of this show might want to be. So I just, you know, would follow through on them. For something like The Old Red Hills of Home, that's very much, you know, all of this stuff. That's very much my voice. That's, you know, that's really my own kind of thing. And I was looking for something that didn't feel overwhelmingly out of period. The hardest work I had to do on Parade was knowing that the idiom itself didn't want to be invaded upon by electric guitars. It didn't want, you know, the stuff that I had grown up and was sort of naturally part of my vocabulary, I had to sort of back my way into some of those things, you know, some of the more aggressively gospel stuff or the, the blues stuff or the rock and roll things that I felt like wouldn't make sense it wouldn't be honest for who these characters were and who these people were. And I didn't, I didn't want to be dishonest about it. I didn't, you know, and Hal was certainly not interested in doing something that was postmodern in that kind of, in a spring awakening kind of way. So I had to bear the period in mind. So we had stuff like, you know, like the old Red Hills of home, which was me just trying to find a neutral character sound. Uh, But then, you know, you have, uh, there's the marches, you know, You know, which is just basic pastiche. I'm just trying to do, you know, my John Philip Sousa. And then, you know, uh, I remember when I had to do the picture show, which is early on in the show. But, you know, and I was like, what is that? And all I could think of was, hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my ragtime gal and little singing frog. So that's that was sort of where a lot of that came from. And, you know, so over the course of writing it, and it took three years, three or four years to really write it, you know, in any kind of finished state. A lot of different influences came in. Someone just asked me the other day, there's a, a chunk in uh, in Real Big News where they go, go on, go on, go on, go on now. And they said, did you did you mean to steal that from Sing Sing Sing? Was that like a, a conscious uh, thing? I said it was conscious, but I was hoping you wouldn't notice. I mean, you know, but yeah, I, you know, I, sure, I stole it. In the same way that I asked you about having, being an arranger, layering your work on top of another composer's, you didn't do all of the arranging and orchestrating of Parade, did you? I did all the arranging. I didn't do the orchestrating. I mean, to the extent that it's worth defining the difference between those two things. You know, an arrangement is the structure, the harmonic language, the basic build of a piece from one end to the other. That's the arrangement. The orchestration is then sort of parceling out all of those things so that they can be played by more than one instrument. As somebody who does that work yourself, what was it like to have other people come in and work on your music? It was 
thrilling. Be- uh, the, you know, the great thing about doing a Broadway show, you know, at, at that time, at any rate, and with Garth, who, you know, had a, this is Garth Rubinsky, who had a lot of resources at his disposal. So I could say, I want the best orchestrator, and he would, you know, be able to do that. But I knew very specifically who I wanted, which was a, a writer named Don Sebesky. And Don had actually done, in addition to being sort of a legend in, in Jazzland, Don had done an album called Symphonic Sondheim, which was all these arrangements of Steve's stuff with the London Symphony Orchestra and just these gorgeous, expansive arrangements. And I just, that's who I wanted. Uh, but what I, what I originally planned with Parade was to have two different orchestrators. I thought I was going to have Don do the big MGM, you know, the, the, the stuff that really needed a lot of size to it. And then there was little stuff. And the guy who I wanted to do that was Bruce Coughlin, who had done uh, Floyd Collins, which I thought was magnificent work. And so I gave Don the big stuff and I gave Bruce the little stuff. And my real, you know, first of all, I couldn't, there was no way I could do it all myself on a practical level because the time is really just too short. You're in rehearsal and that's when a number is getting routined. And then to go from that routine, you have to then go orchestrate it. But I also have to be in rehearsal to work with the actors and to see what's going on there. So it's just not practical to, to orchestrate the original production of a Broadway show, at least not that one. So I couldn't do that. But also, Creatively, I don't think I was entirely up to it. I think I could probably do it now, but back then, I just didn't have the resources as an orchestrator to know how to do what Don did, you know, for a living, you know, what Don's entire career was based in. So I thought, why not have the best person in the world come in and do it? And then I get to see how that works. And so the instructive part of it was that working with Don was thrilling and it was really great. And then working with Bruce, uh, as Bruce will tell you, was not great. Uh, and we were both really shocked to find that out. But Bruce came in with charts and I keep saying, this isn't what I want. This isn't what I'm looking for. And th- they were too big or they had sort of, they rearranged an idea in a way that I didn't like. And Bruce got very upset and uh, he sort of asked to be let off the project. And so we let him go. And then I did, I took over and I did all of those charts, mm-hmm. which I was perfectly happy to do. And it was fine. And there, at that point, I, the show was enough on its way that I had time to do them but it was it was really uh it was somewhat damaging and uh, bruce and i have managed not to talk about it uh in all the years we're you know we're we're friendly now but it's just sort of a a discussion that doesn't come up Hmm. but it was uh, it was certainly weird the show certainly got acclaim you received a tony award probably the one of the youngest composers ever to do so when the show was revived in london nine years later at the donmar you made changes. Now, I saw you make a comment on Twitter. Somebody asked why you made changes, and you said to make it better. What did you think needed doing on Parade at a distance of nine years? I'll break it up into two component parts. The first of them is that purely on a, a level of necessity, the Donmar, where we were doing it, did not have the physical capability of doing the original version of the show. You know, which was to say, thirty-six actors and twenty people in the orchestra. That was—it was impossible. They just there wasn't the physical space for it. And we wanted very much to be at the Donmar because cool things happen there, and the kind of support that they can give to a work was very exciting. And to have our work premiered in London because it had not been done in London for nine years, it had never been done there. So the idea of having the premiere in this particular prestigious venue was really very attractive to me. And so I wanted to do that. So on a practical level, we had to make changes to adjust to that. The second question is about what I might have been dissatisfied with. 
in the original show. And a lot of that did take nine years for me to figure out. There were always things that I wasn't nuts about. And Hal had certain quirks and certain stories that he wanted to tell that were not necessarily the stories that Alfred and I wanted to tell. And I think if you saw the original show and knew that, you could see sort of what was Hal's stuff and what was mine and Alfred's. And I had gone into the writing of Parade knowing, because I had done those two shows with Hal previously, knowing that you're sort of, no matter what you write, you're going to end up doing Hal's show. So I knew that going in. But at the same time, as a writer, at a certain point, you know, you just you write where your passion is and where it goes. And there were just clearly things that that Hal did not agree with me about. And so some of the changes that we made in the Donmar, whether Hal would agree there for the better or not, there were just things that I wanted to do that we couldn't do with Hal directing it. He didn't want to do them. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we didn't do them. And so that that was some of the changes. And then some of it was really just about storytelling. The weirdest thing about the show is that I've always liked the first act much better than the second, and I still do, but that the audience does not. And I, I can tell that. I can feel it. And I think the reason I like the first act better than the second is there's a lot more music in the first act. I mean, it's just it, it's a lot of different things and new characters being introduced, and this is how they do it. And I just love the threads and how it all gets sort of opened up and, and all of that. And then knitting the threads together, I think I probably did less artfully in the second act than I would do it now for example, but even uh, less artfully than Alfred did it, for example. And I think the audience responds to the story in the second act better. And plus, you know, there's there's sort of much more, it, it, there's a positive momentum in the second act, whereas in the first act, there's nothing but a negative momentum. Something bad is happening. And in the second act, it starts to look like something good is happening. It's wrong, mm. but it starts to look that way. At this point, if someone goes to do a production of Parade, is it the Donmar version, uh, or oh yeah, or no, no, we we, we, we withdrew the the original version, which I I really I fought very hard to do. I mean, I didn't have to convince Alfred very hard, but you know, there's always that thing, like with Candide or with Merrily We Roll Along, that there are these sort of competing versions out in the world, and I, I appreciate that people may fall in love with some song that was in one version but wasn't in another. But I, as long as I'm alive, I. I wanted to be able to say, no, this is what we meant. This is the definitive thing. This was this was the thing that we wanted to say. You know, it took us 10 years to arrive at it, but now that we've arrived at it, let's just trust this. Um, you know, and hopefully I've got a couple of more years left in me, and so if I choose to turn around on that, you know, we'll see. But I, the new version of the show, strictly as a piece of writing, is so much better, I think, so much tighter and stronger than the original version was. The one difficulty is that the orchestra size is so much smaller. David Cullen wrote uh, the orchestrations for the Donmar, and they're fantastic. They're gorgeous, but they're very specific chamber orchestrations. I had asked him to think about, you know, um, Stravinsky, you know, to really think about uh, L'Histoire du Soudal. And so he did that, but they can't expand upwards. So I'm working on reconciling the orchestration so that if you have a large company and want to do parade, there is an orchestration that suits that company. But that's a very expensive process and there's nobody helping me. So it'll take a while. From the scale of parade, the last five years was sort of diametrically opposed. Oh, deliberately so, It's yeah. a show with for two actors. Was that a conscious decision? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. On every level. I mean, look, parade – it was really hard. It was really thrilling. And I hate to be the guy who sits and complains about, oh, the experience of my first Broadway show. But it was just – it was hard. Um, and it was especially hard because it closed so fast and there wasn't a future in that show because it had 36 actors and four of them had to be black. And, it you know, it had to be a very specific thing. And where was that show going to get done? And so uh, really the last five years – 
was partly about size and then it was partly about not having collaborators. I just wanted not to be working with anybody else. I wanted to see what happened if I just wrote something that was entirely on my own. Um, and ultimately, Daisy was very helpful in shaping the material. But uh, not having Alfred was depressing, but very important for me. But not having a, a director who insisted on the flow of a show going in a certain way, I just needed to, to be free of, of sort of Hal's way of working for a little while. Uh, I would sort of, I'd happily go back to it now, but at that time I had spent sort of four years, uh, you know, in Hal's way of working and I needed to find my own again. And I think of the last five years as sort of a fusion in writing styles between Songs for a New World and Parade. You know, I think there's the expansiveness uh, of uh, of Songs for a New World musically, but I think the, the sense of narrative that I was able to pull off in Parade, I, I could bring to the table uh, there. But in terms of while it is certainly a story that we all know is drawn in part from your own life, the actual crafting of the story, the decision of having the characters track in different directions as we watch the story, had you thought about yourself as somebody who would create the narratives as well as creating the scores for musicals? I would like to. I w- you know, I, I would like to now, and I did then. I didn't see any reason why not. I mean, I'm working on a piece now that requires me to write a lot of dialogue, and I'm vaguely daunted by it, not because I don't think I can do it, but because I just, I, I have this fear of everyone, you know, mocking me self-reflexively, like, oh, smell how fancy I am that I'm writing my own dialogue. But I didn't worry about that that much with the last five years. But it was also, it was very clear conceptually, you know, what I wanted it to be. And I always will make a brief that some pieces of musical theater should be taken as seriously as pieces of theatrical writing as any play sort of reflexively is. And so I wanted to write a very serious piece of musical theater. So I didn't have any real trepidation about taking on the story part of it because I felt like the music was telling the story largely anyway. Hmm. I want to mention you've done incidental music for a number of plays, several of David Lindsay Abair's plays, one of Marsha Norman's, Ken Lonergan, to some degree, that may have been it was a gig, and it was a no. Way to I make really some wanted bucks. to do it. I mean, really? it was it was a gig, but I sought it out. Um, I remember when I first moved to the city, uh, Neil Simon had a show on uh, called Proposals, uh, which didn't run for very long. But Steve Flaherty had written the music, and I remember walking past the, the I think it was the Broadhurst, and seeing original music by Stephen Flaherty, and I thought, I want that gig. I want to write the music to a Neil Simon play. How cool would that be? And I really, I also thought. It's a fast gig. How, you know, what does that take? So after the last five years, I had already done David's two shows, but I sort of concentrated more on working at Manhattan Theater Club because they had been interested in me and they kept asking me to come back. So I did a bunch of shows for them. The last of which I did was a Neil Simon play, which was an utter and total catastrophe, but I had very little to do with it. That would be the Mary Tyler Moore piece, I yes. guess? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> No one ever heard my music. It wasn't even teched into the show because the Mary they didn't get the show, and so yeah. they just kept all the temp stuff they had been using. But what appealed to you? Why was it interesting to create music to accompany an entirely text-based piece of work? Well, writing a musical is a very long process, but this felt like such a short hand of collaborating with great writers. You know, I felt like I got to collaborate with Marsha and with David Lindsay Bear and with Kenny Lonergan, who isn't going to write a musical as far as I can tell. But boy, what a privilege to be in the same room as Kenny mm-hmm. and, and bringing his stuff to life. Uh, and David Marshall Grant, uh, you know, I, I got to work with directors and writers who, uh, you know, 
they were sort of I wasn't in their weight class, but I got to be able to hang around them and, and work with them. And I felt like that only made my work better. But also it was sort of it was being in the theater. It was part of the job. So I, I loved doing it. It was never especially lucrative. But, you know, I also I always insisted on using live musicians, which is not the custom for these things, apparently. Uh, but so I got to have, you know, wonderful players come in and do things. When I did Kimberly Akimbo, I had the John Hendricks, the legendary jazz singer, came in and just did some scat over it because I felt like that was part of it. And I mm -hmm. thought, what other excuse do I have to work with John Hendricks? It's the coolest thing in the world. So it was, you know, on, on that level, it was great. And, you know, the other thing about writing incidental music in particular, but music in general is really... Nobody who isn't a musician knows what the hell you're doing. You know, you can you can explore and enjoy and play a lot of games and, and have a lot of fun and puzzles and pull things together, and nobody really knows. And so you get to do all of that work on your own. Uh, and so what comes out of it feels very much, you know, it can feel very much of a piece. It can feel like something that's really a, a real creative work as opposed to just a job. Hmm. Urban Cowboy. You have written and spoken about it being a gig and just sort of being something that's there on your resume that you don't want to recap. It's not on much. my resume. <laughs> and it ultimately resulted in your deciding to leave New York. Actually, the decision was made before Urban Cowboy. Urban oh. Cowboy was the job I took because I thought, well, I'm already leaving New York. Who gives a shit? So um, I, after the last five years, I had decided that I just didn't know how to live in the city anymore. And then I was just looking for a way to, to earn enough money to live in Italy, which was the plan at the time, and which ultimately I did. So Urban Cowboy came along and, you know, God bless Lonnie Price, who had to take over. The original director had died as they were about to go into rehearsal and Lonnie took over. And then Lonnie asked me to come in and take over for the music director. And, you know, Lonnie just did a, a sterling job at keeping that ship afloat. I mean, uh, you know... There was no one on board who did not know that the ship was ready to crash into, you know, a wall or whatever it is that ships crash into. Iceberg, I guess, would be the thing. You know, we all saw it coming, but, you know, Lonnie just I kept it going. I think if the ship's going to run into a wall, you already know you're in trouble before you get there. Well, I, I'm saying. So, um, <laughs> you know, but Lonnie brought me on board, and everyone took very good care of me. I was paid extraordinarily well, and it gave me the wherewithal to basically retire for a year, you know, and I did you know, uh, George and I moved to Italy and I just was able to be there and write piano sonatas and, you know, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. When you came back, you went to Los Angeles, not known as the musical theater capital of the world. Oh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> um, was there a desire to isolate yourself from the community of musical theater? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, in not so many words, yeah. I mean, Los Angeles specifically happened because USC offered me a semester of work as a guest professor there. And it was, you know, enough money that I could live on it there. And I didn't know what I was going to do. So I thought, well, I might as well just go do this. And so George and I went to uh, Los Angeles and we sublet a house for six months and I taught at USC. And then while we were there, you know, and I think we had assumed – that we would sort of come back to Connecticut or something like that. I, I knew I couldn't live in Manhattan anymore, but, you know, we, we'd, we'd come back to somewhere to the Northeast. But while we were there, Georgia got pregnant, and, you know, we sort of loved our OBGYN. We wanted to have the baby in Los Angeles, and USC turned out to be a really lovely experience, and they wanted me to stay on and keep teaching at the School of Theater. And all of a sudden, it started to feel like 
a place I could live, which is, you know, one of those ironies because I had a total, you know, Woody Allen response to Los Angeles for most of my life. You know, in my 20s, I was there a couple of times and I just couldn't help thinking, you know, that it was a really, it would be the worst possible place to not just to live, but to die. Mm-hmm. But once we, uh, once I started working at USC, I, I really, I found my way through Los Angeles and I'm not in the movie business at all, which I think is probably the more disgusting part of the, the city. I just, you know, it's a it's a perfectly nice suburban town really at the end of the day. It feels very Midwestern if you're not in the business with a capital B. So I teach at USC and I've got really great weather while, you know, everyone here in New York is crying and suffering under the snow. When did the impulse for 13 begin? 13 had actually – I invited Dan Ellish to come – to one of the early previews of Urban Cowboy. that I can date our collaboration to then. He had written this book called Born Too Short, which he thought might be a musical, and he dropped it off at my house. And I didn't think that was the musical, but I thought, you know, I like the idea of writing a piece for young people. And I had had an idea that I had developed with some people, uh, you know, at a book company who wanted to do a touring show, and none of it ever came. But the characters for 13 and the idea of a show with 13, 13-year-olds had come up then. Um, and then I put it away in a drawer, and then I met Dan... I thought maybe Dan will want to write this 13-year-old show with me, and who knows what it is. So that was all going. But we wrote very slowly because, honestly, none of us thought there was a Broadway life for it. We thought it's a lark, and maybe it'll turn into a big touring kind of a show. But that's the most that we ever expected. And so by the time I got to Los Angeles, we had we had done a demo of the first four songs, and I refused to write anymore unless someone was going to pay me to write it because I thought, well, this is just a great way to waste my time. I don't have to, to do that. So... I on a lark I gave it to Michael Ritchie at a meeting we had we had a breakfast meeting because the Michael dean Ritchie at, who runs Center Theater Group well he tape. had just taken over right. Center Theater Group so uh, Madeline the dean at USC had set me up on a breakfast meeting to meet Michael we're just both new to town wouldn't you like to meet each other so on a lark I gave him the 13 CD and I said well this is like one of the things I'm working on ha 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 and he put it on in his car as he was heading off and so 15 minutes later when he had gotten to his office he called me he said I want to do this show. And that was the first moment at which 13 started becoming a show. You know, it had been an idea, and we had written some great stuff at that point. But now the impetus to actually make it work in a theater uh, uh, became very real. So that was when it all uh, got concrete, and uh, and that was sort of the start of the, the taper production. You didn't write music that seemed geared to be sung by 13 year olds. You wrote some complex stuff. That would challenge kids. It's geared to be sung by talented 13-year-olds. I mean, it's not – this stuff is not – you know, it's not the last five years. I mean, comparatively, if you look at the vocal requirements of 13 and the vocal requirements of Parade, for example, they're very Mm -hmm. different. I'm very sensitive to the age group I was writing with. But as with the last five years and Songs for a New World, I was writing for the best people that there absolutely were. And I don't write for amateurs. That's not interesting to me. And it wasn't the assignment anyway in my head. The assignment was write for the most dazzling kids in the entire world. And so that's what the writing was supposed to be. And you also insisted that the band be under 18. Yeah, well, the original hope was that they would be 13. But, you know, I, on a practical level, we just said, well, we'll audition kids up to 18 and we'll see what it goes. And of course, you know, the older kids were naturally better. And so you ended up hiring them. But I felt like the sound of the show, it's a very hard to articulate thing. But there is a difference between the way kids play and the way grownups play. And I just wanted that sound of the way kids played it. And the music is not scaled down to them in any particular way. It's just There's something about the energy that you get from a group of kids playing something that's very different than professionals. 
Early on, you mentioned that uh, after your experience at Eastman, uh, around the time there was the camp French Woods that you were at. And subsequent to the Broadway production of 13, you ended up taking the show up to French Woods to work on revisions with the campers there? Or you'd done the revisions and wanted to see Yeah, I mean, basically, it it was that. uh, Robert Horn, who had come in to help with Dan with the book, Robert and I, after the show closed on Broadway, you know, Broadway was trauma. It was literally, it was like triage all the time. And it was done in the most inhospitable environment with so much pressure and a lot of people feeling like the wrong things were important. And the show was just, I actually liked the show that premiered on Broadway, but it was a very difficult and unhappy experience. And so when it was done, Robert and I looked at each other and said, well, all those things that we put in at the last minute that we never got a chance to really finish, let's finish those. Let's go ahead and do it before we give it to MTI to license. And so we took a whole pass at the show, and then I asked Ron Schaefer, who runs French Woods, I said, would you mind if we came down and did it with your kids? And he said, yeah, sure, come and do it. So they had a director, a kid named Jeff Maynard, kid, guy named Jeff Maynard, uh, who I had gone to camp with when I was 15, uh, and he directed the kids, and I came in for the last week, and I watched it, and I saw what worked, and I saw what didn't work, and I took notes, and I was able to sort of change a couple of little things, but there wasn't that much time to do that. But armed with that information, uh, I went back to Robert, and I said, this is what sort of flies and this doesn't fly and maybe we can come up with a better idea for this and so we did one more pass at it and that's the current mti script Hmm. this is the point in the interview where i usually say gee have you got anything coming up but i have a list here i said a cornucopia of upcoming projects what's the status of the film version of last five years i don't know i mean they're out trying to finance it and find the whoever it is, the movie star. I mean, the whole thing is written. We know who's writing it. We know who's directing it, uh, none of which I'm apparently at liberty to tell you. But it's all – all the the chessboard is there. We just need to get the, the pieces on the board. That was terrible, terrible metaphor. I'll come up with something better. Anyway, get back to that. <laughs> what is The Connector? The Connector is uh, – Daisy had wanted to write a piece. Uh, she had come to me with the idea of writing something about – Stephen Glass, who was a, a New Republic, something like that, where he had written a, a series oh, sure. of articles which turned out to be entirely sure, fabricated. a film called Broken Glass. Right, and Shattered yeah. Glass was the, Shattered name of the Glass. movie. So Daisy had seen the movie and had read the articles and just thought it was fascinating, wanted to write something about him. And that came about at the same time as Jason Blair was going on. And I also remembered Janet Malcolm at the Washington Post and the whole Pulitzer scandal and all right. of that. So I thought it was really interesting. But when she first came to me, all I could think of was that it was supposed to be like Lady in the Dark, where, you know, the these fabricated stories would be the musical numbers and then the rest of it would be just a play. And I didn't want to do that. I just I didn't I couldn't see my way around the show in any other way. So I let it go for a while. And then I came back to her a couple of years later and I said, you know what? I've been thinking about it and I have a way into the this piece that that seems like fun to me and so we have since been sort of trying to craft this very strange little chamber musical uh that's about a reporter who may or may not ever be telling the truth about anything uh and the people who he works with and it's a very difficult scary little piece i love what we're doing but it's hard so i that's all i really know about it right now (laughs) How did you and Marsha Norman come to be working on a musical of the Bridges of Madison County? Marsha Norman and I 
did I did I I wrote the music for a play of Marsha's uh, at Manhattan Theater Club, but I never spoke to Marsha the entire time. Lynn Meadow was directing it, and Lynn would just give me this list of notes, uh, and they were all sort of weird, specious notes, and I would take them as best I could. And then I sort of ran out of time and money, and I just said, "Look, you got the score you've got, and I got to go." So that was that was the end of that, and I never heard from Marsha about whether she liked the music. I didn't know anything, and I had sent her a note saying thank you for the opportunity. I didn't get anything back, so I was like, "Ugh, the hell with you." So that was all that I knew about it, and then I got uh, a call. This is a longer story than you probably have time for. But I got a call to uh, to have a meeting with Marsha about a musical. These producers had called me and Marsha separately to come and meet about a musical that, that uh, somebody was going to direct. So we met with the director, who we both agreed was the most pompous jerk in the entire world. And Marsha and I had so much fun sort of making fun of this guy that we kept talking afterwards. And she said, I just got this commission to write a piece for the Kennedy Center that's going to be like Peter and the Wolf but it's based on an E.B. White novel called The Trumpet of the Swan. Do you want to write the music? And the idea of writing an orchestra piece, uh, and especially an orchestra piece for kids, was absolutely thrilling. And I said, yeah, sure, let's do it. And so that was all while we were in rehearsal for 13 on Broadway. So I had to get through the entirety of Broadway, which uh, opened on October 4th, and the production of Trumpet of the Swan was going to open on December 12th. So I had basically five five and a half weeks to write the entire score. And then I hired Sam Davis to do the orchestrations. And then we went. So it was another collaboration I had with Marsha where we didn't actually talk to each other much. She was sort of sent me the script and then I wrote, you know, my stuff that went around it. And the first time either of us heard anything was at the orchestra read, but we had a fantastic time. And we just kept saying, well, we have to do something where we actually get to work together, where we actually get to work in the same room. So we started scouting around for projects, and we both have uh, the same agent. Uh, Bazzetti uh, represents both of us. And so I, he, somehow or other, Jim Lapine was supposed to do the Bridges of Madison County musical, and he didn't think it was his bag, and he sent the estate over to Marsha. And so Marsha said, this sounds great. Let me see if Jason wants to do it. And I said, look, if you're involved, of course I want to do it. I don't know anything about the book other than that it's supposed to be terrible, but I'll, I'll take a look at it. And then I read the book, and it's very stirring. I, it's not my thing, but I, the characters in it are gorgeous, and the emotional life of it was beautiful. And I said to Marsha, do you have a take on this? Because if you know what you want to do with this, I'm in. And she sent me her treatment, and it was just heartbreaking and beautiful and pulled out all the good stuff in the book. It just sort of – it just made the, all this stuff that was sort of implied just brought it to beautiful life. And I said, I want to be a part of this so badly. So that's how we started working on it, and Jeffrey Richards is producing it, and I, you know, we'll see what happens. But and, it's been and I've heard the track experience. that's on Kelly O'Hara's upcoming album, which yes. is quite beautiful. Honeymoon in Vegas? As a musical, working with this original screenwriter, Andrew Bergman? That's been in the works for an extremely long time, but there's finally momentum behind it. We have producers. Yes, your it, website it, it, still says it's due in 2007. Well, my website also is due in 2007. Um, uh, there's a... Uh, what had happened was Marty Bell had gotten a call from MGM. That's how long ago this was. And MGM had said, we want to develop our properties into musicals. And this is what eventually turned Legally Blonde into a show. It was that, that initiative. So they sent a list of properties to Marty. And Marty said, I want to work with you on a show. You tell me what you want to do. And the only property on the list that was interesting to me was Honeymoon in Vegas because I remembered it and I loved the movie. So I said to Marty, get that one. And then Marty called back. He said, well, MGM said, how could you possibly pick that one? It's the one thing on the list that we don't, in fact, have the rights to. So so it turned out that Bergman had bought back the rights for himself uh, so that he could write a musical of it. And so long after Marty uh, had left the business, Andy and I met through Lonnie Price, actually. 
And Andy had heard that I had wanted to do this. And so he said, you want to work on it with me? And Andy had never written a musical before. And I just, I mean, Andy's one of my heroes as a comedy writer. I mean, Blazing Saddles and The In-Laws and just these wonderful, wonderful movies. And so I said, look, I'll do anything if you're going to write it. So we started working together. And it's just been a wonderful, joyful process. But it's taken fucking forever to get on. And I don't know why. But hopefully, like I said, there's momentum behind it now. It's a great show. As I said at the beginning, I spoke of your the frequency with which you perform. You also engage with your audience enormously. We met for the first time in person today, but we've communicated via Twitter. You blog. You got very involved in advocating about the issue of sheet music, which was being stolen and passed around and, and denying people – the money that they should earn from their work. You are so out front in engaging with your audience, in engaging intellectually with the ideas surrounding the writing of musical theater, the business of writing music, et cetera, et cetera. Why have you chosen to speak so much yourself, whereas so many choose to speak solely through the work? I think it still comes back to the stuff that I said at the beginning about the performing. Uh, first of all, anyone who knows me, who's known me for a long time, would probably say that I've always wanted a pulpit of some kind, uh, that it's far easier for me to interact with 100,000 people than it is for me to interact with one at a time. And in fact, one at a time is terrifying. That kind of proselytizing comes very naturally to me, and I'm very comfortable with it, and I like doing it. Secondly, I can. I'm comfortable enough with the medium and with understanding it. And, you know, I know how to write in, you know, traditionally accepted English. That counts. And then thirdly, again, the shows don't produce themselves. And I've always felt like the best way to get my work out there was to put a face on it. You know, the last five years gets, you know, 200 productions a year and 13 gets 250 productions a year, something like that. And Songs for a New World gets done all the time. And they've become works that are associated with me. And I'm very happy about that, both because I feel like the works really do represent me, but also because that means that the work that I do, I get to stand behind, you know, and people are looking for the next Jason Robert Brown piece. And that's important to me and important to my bank account and important to, you know, sort of the work that I want to do in the future that people are interested in, not just one specific show, but what my body of work is. Well, it's been a pleasure getting to know a bit of you on Twitter, and it's been a pleasure spending an hour talking with you, and I look forward to all of these upcoming pieces. Jason Robert Brown, thank you so much for joining us today on Downstage Center. Thank you, Howard. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is John Kilgore. Post-production is by Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. This edition of Downstage Center was recorded at John Kilgore Sound and Recording in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free. 
from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we're a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.